Welcome to Late Night Disclosure, a FundApps podcast series for compliance professionals where we discuss industry pain points and insights. We are your hosts. I am Kevin Raj Bhatia, the head of content here at FundApps. Hello, I'm Carl Schindler. I'm lead regulatory expert here at FundApps. And I'd like to introduce our guest today, Ebe Filt-Peterson. Thanks, guys. My name is Ebe. I've been with FundApps for as long time as Carl, plus a month. Uh, so we've been working together for seven years, and we used to code the rules together, read through memorandas, understanding the regulations. I managed the client services team for a couple of years, and now use all that expertise in the business development team. Uh, it's great, Eve. And um, today's topic, today what we want to talk about is the transparency directive. I would argue probably one of the, the most important rule sets we have here at FundApps and, and important globally. Eve, do you want to just give a, you know, a brief history of, of the directive and the amending directive? Yeah, I mean, I love the transparency directive and I love the history of the transparency directive. And it all kind of started from the basic idea that the European Union, as it was formed, wanted to harmonize the regimes across all the different countries or member states. And in 2013, then came out the first transparency directive with the overarching purpose of harmonizing the disclosure obligations for each of the member states. Now, the important thing to understand when we are discussing the implementation of a directive is the local interpretation and implementation of that rule set set out by the European Parliament. Despite the intention to harmonize, we do see discrepancies in how these rules are implemented in the different countries. In 2015, uh, as it was the deadline for implementation of the enhanced or the transparency directive amending directive, uh, that was uh, or the implementation deadline was in November 2015, which basically sought to further harmonize uh, the requirements for disclosures in the European Union. So what the, uh, the union did for those five years in the interim was to observe the strengths and weaknesses of the, the original directive and then basically fix the flaws of it. Um, with the new uh, updated Transparency Directive 2 or the TDAD, as we also call it. So you would say the, the main objective of this whole thing from the start was, was just to bring some kind of standardization across the countries. How well would you say that sort of came to, to accomplishing that goal? They did well, in my opinion. If you understand the core of the Transparency Directive, then you have a broad understanding of the general purpose of what these rules seek to achieve, which is regardless of how the transparency directive is implemented in each jurisdiction, there is still that fundamental goal. And if we understand that fundamental goal, it makes it, I won't say easy, but it makes it easier to understand why each member state have chosen to implement it in a certain way, because they all seek basically the same outcome. However, that said, now that we, as just mentioned, we are talking about different uh, implementations of the rules, we still need to be very careful about understanding the nuances in each of, of, of these jurisdictions. So from an investor's point of view, it may not be obvious that the, this harmonization has really worked, but from the regulator's point of view, it definitely has. Um, it might be interesting to touch a little bit on kind of one of the things that was maybe optional in the, in the transparency directive. I'm, I'm thinking of here of the aggregated bucket. Just talk about kind of 
the, the main kind of change that you saw when we went into the amending directive? Yeah, for sure. So the concept of these horizontal aggregation buckets, they were already present in the original directive. What it basically means is that if we are now taking the original directive was that investors were required to calculate and disclose on two separate sets of assets. One was called the shares and one was called the financial instruments. And as the names kind of give away here, shares contained equity shares and those styles of instruments, whereas the financial instruments bucket uh, included stuff like options and convertibles, uh, convertible bonds, warrants, uh, etc. It wasn't a requirement to calculate your aggregate exposure. So across the two buckets, aggregating them together, that wasn't a requirement under the original directive. However, given this freedom to implement additional rules or gold-plated rules on top of the directive's guidelines, a lot of the member states chose to make it a requirement to make this uh, aggregate calculation. And when the transparency directive, amending directive came out in 2015, the European Parliament had kind of observed that given that probably 95% of the member states have already gold-plated this requirement, let's embedded into the standard guidelines, into the core directive. So that was one of the, probably the biggest change uh, from the two directives compared to each other, that that was now a solid requirement and it was not optional anymore. I wonder like the countries that didn't have this aggregated feature already, like was it a big change for them or they just didn't decide, they just decided not to gold plate it in the original TD? I think it's decided not to gold plate because I know Germany was one of the countries in the transparency directive originally that did gold plate into the aggregated bucket, right? Explicitly. But I think many others didn't. Uh, I, 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 it's just surprising to me. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. like, why would you not? Like, it, it's actually, it's probably easier to just bucket everything together, right? It's, it's easier than to have all these asset managers try to like segregate these, these, these things into different places. I think the regular or the, the the parliament originally would probably have thought that these these two uh, asset classes or asset uh, groupings they are fundamentally different. One is a direct interest in a company, and the other one is an indirect interest. So it doesn't make sense to aggregate them. But I mean, once you also understand how derivatives work and what actually happens when they expire or when you choose to exercise them and so on and how easily they can actually be exercised. I think they kind of figured out that people could get to these voting rights, which are the essence of, of the directive, right? They could get to them pretty fast. Yeah. And because of that chose to say, okay, let's make the aggregated bucket because that gives a picture of what you could potentially acquire in a very short amount of time. Now that you describe it, that actually makes more sense. I, I, I would bet they were concerned with voting rights at the beginning and said, okay, well, let's separate these two into different buckets because, you know, some have voting rights that you directly hold and some don't. And then, you know, as the years went on, they were like, oh, wait a second. Like people are getting access to voting rights. Um, in, by other ways, um, and the economic interest is the same. So we might as well make it all, you know, aggregate it all together. And, and just to give a, sh a shameless plug here for every something you're working on, which is FundApps Academy. I know there you're going into some, a lot more detail, of course, about the transparency directive, some interesting cases, even related to issues that probably we don't have time to get into, but cash settled instruments, physically settled, and, and some interesting stories also about how that led the amended directive. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's probably one of the most interesting changes that has happened in uh, or in the original directive to the to the transparency directive amending directive. This inclusion of cash settled derivatives and instruments in general, because as we just talked about, shares is one thing that's actual holding, actual control in companies via voting rights, whereas uh, physically settled derivatives and convertible instruments are entitlements to acquire those voting rights, which you can acquire on a specific time horizon. Now, cash settled instruments, they do not at any point in time gives the holder the right to acquire the underlying votes. So why would they ever be deemed in scope for a directive which seeks information and transparency on holders' access to voting rights? How I see this uh, as a general is that given how the financial markets works and the contracts which can be agreed on between two investors, let's call them, two, two parties, if I make an agreement to say, I will settle this swap contract in cash, but then come expiry of the swap, I have the ability to argue that I want the physical settlement instead. And all of a sudden, now it is a physically settled derivative where I will acquire those underlying uh, votes and will be in scope for the directive. However, I haven't disclosed on them for the entire lifetime of that swap contract, which of course is I'm staying under the radar for as long time as possible, which of course is not an acceptable thing in a directive which seeks transparency. So I think one of the reasons, uh, amongst others, that's one of the reasons that the parliament chose to include this type of derivative because they wanted to avoid investors building up large stakes via cash settled instruments and then changing the settlement type at the expiry date, more or less. And um, in that way, having that control uh, from day one to day two. It's, a, it's one of the, my, my favorite stories in Sheldon Disclosure is exactly this scenario where it's Louis Vuitton and Hermes battling out legal battles for years because of a potential for a hostile takeover between these fashion giants on exactly uh, what I just described. Yeah, I think I think that's like it seems like a no-brainer. You know, I know there are most you know other jurisdictions in the world, U.S. specifically, you know, not including cash settled instruments. Um, but I think if you're writing, you know, a modern, you know, transparency directive or anything like they did in, in 2014 and 15, it's it's pretty clear like these these cash settled instruments should probably be included if your intention is to to get full transparency. Um, so, yeah, exactly. And there is one, one very interesting thing, though, when we are discussing this, this topic here, is how you're required to calculate your exposure, so your, your exposure to underlying voting rights via these different in instruments here. Because when you are holding cash-settled instruments, then you actually delta adjust that position when calculating how many underlying votes you have access to. And that, in my opinion, makes quite a lot of sense because as long as your derivative is settled in cash, well, then it is purely an economic exposure you have to the underlying shares yep. and not an, an actual representation of how many shares you have access to. So here we must be talking about a, a monetary exposure and that monetary exposure, the risk you're facing in, in terms of uh, price fluctuations is the Delta adjusted exposure. And then if you do change your settlement type, then of course 
the delta adjustment requirement falls away. And can you briefly just talk about, um, I was just thinking like, okay, like the response to that was probably like, all right, I'll package these up in like indices and baskets and structured products and, and things that no regulator will ever be able to, to figure out. Can you just talk a little bit about how, how the directive addresses that? Yeah, that's another or another big kind of implementation uh, that has happened, which is the inclusion of index-based or basket-based uh, products, like you mentioned, structured products or index-based products, uh, ETFs as well. You can you can argue in, in in some cases, the way that the transparency directive have done this is in a way good, in a way bad, because you only include exposure helped to these types of products if the relevant constituent weights more than 20% of the index, or if you synthetically hold 1% or more of that constituent's voting rights via that index or basket-based product. So of course that leaves out uh, a small position held on the uh, French CACs index, for example. That will never be deemed in scope because the exposure is not large enough to each individual constituent. But if your position becomes large enough to fill uh, to meet one of these two criteria, then it's deemed, uh, deemed in scope. How that has affected the investors and the disclosing entities under the transparency directive, that's another story because in order to be 100% sure of your disclosure obligations, you need to go through a very large amount of calculations on each index constituent that you hold, which is um, another struggle. I remember, Abby, we were were coding some of these rules uh, as, as FunOps was growing back in the day. Um, many hedge funds coming on board with very a lot of these products or a, an amount that needed to be calculated. And we're thinking, you know, how could someone actually do this without an algorithm running against all these constituents and, and evaluating that 20 and one criteria, et cetera. So it was really interesting, especially for those holding a lot of derivatives, even if they're lending, we talked about the financial insurance bucket, um, how that affects it. So yeah, it's interesting to see. Uh, and that is, that is one of the things that we, we talk about a lot is, okay, does it make sense to try to do this in Excel or uh, another system, or is there a better way to kind of to kind of look at this? Uh, on that topic and related to that is is the kind of data uh, that clients need to have. Um, maybe you can talk just for a minute about the home member state criteria. Maybe give us a little bit of a flavor of kind of some of the difficulties around that, um, and then maybe some of the other data like issues you see like with clients trying to kind of do these calculations. Yeah, to, to take the, the obvious ones first, uh, which is, of course, the index, if, if we just nail that one yeah. uh, first, then as mentioned, it is a very large amount of data that is required to be uh, examined in order to be sure that you're not missing a requirement. First of all, if you are a, a company that do trade a lot in like broad indices, maybe with hundreds of different constituents, you're going to need to acquire essentially, um, I'll say 30 different properties on those constituents. Where are they incorporated? Where are they listed? Um, What are the deltas of the the options you hold? And so on and so forth in order for us to do the correct, uh, in order for them to do the correct calculations and they need to do them across every single constituent. 
basically to check this 1% of voting rights uh, requirement. So there is a very large amount of data required to monitor this. And then of course, if you are doing it with uh, Excel or another system, a lot of computing power required as well. The home member state uh, to touch a bit on, on that, which of course has been a, a hot topic, a boiling pot of the uh, implementation of the transparency directive for years, because the home member state is basically just any of the states in the European Union. And they are kind of where the property, the data input that we use to determine where you should disclose your holding in Vodafone or in Societe Generale uh, stocks or whatever it may be. The home member state is determined um, based on a few things for the issuer. The transparency directive at its core is only interested in listings or issuers that have their shares listed on a regulated market within the European Union. That's, that's the baseline. The way that we then determine the regulatory authority where we need to disclose our issuer, which is listed on a regulated market, is then via, first of all, if it is a, uh, a company which is incorporated in one of the European Union's member state, then we disclose to that country's regulatory authority. So let's take Vodafone, for example. It is uh, listed on the London Stock Exchange. It is incorporated in the United Kingdom. That's a really bad example because of the Brexit situation, isn't yeah. it? But you get the idea. But then we move into the more spicy territory of issuers because we also have issuers which are what we call third country issuers. And they are the issuers which are incorporated outside the European Union, but have their shares listed on a European regulated market. Here, they will have a, a choice to make of which home member state they want. And they can choose from each of the countries on where they have their shares listed on a regulated market. So if I'm a third country that have my shares listed both in Amsterdam in the Netherlands and in Frankfurt in Germany on the two regulated markets, I need to choose between the two. So we as investors need to figure all this out when uh, across all the issuers that we hold. And for that, we have seen our golden source as being this thirds list provided by uh, independent regulatory body, ESMA. And one thing with that database is that it's extremely large, contains so much information and can be very difficult to understand, basically. Um, and then there's also been more at the beginning of the, uh, or the launch of the ESMA uh, thirds database where the data wasn't necessarily at its best state. And also we must remember that the FIRDS database and the properties that are in there that we use for this purpose was really implemented for the purpose of MIFID II, which means that we only actually use it as a proxy for our regulatory authority for each of the European regulated listings. So that there are definitely complexities there that we need to be aware of. And for anyone, all of our listeners, and hopefully if, if ESMA is listening right now, I, I, I'm a believer in the podcast, I so hopefully they will be, um, I hope they implement the EAP, European Electronic Access Point, which was, I believe, in reference in the directive to have a centralized database of the third, third, the members, third uh, states 
home member state selection. So we're waiting on that. We'd love to have it. Everyone would love to have it. Uh, yeah. Hopefully we'll see it. It seems like so fundamental, um, you know, where to disclose the position. Um, and obviously because, you know, harmonization does not equal harmonization, each country could have a different, you know, threshold. It matters, you know, so if you're, if you're reporting at 3% or 5%, depending on the country, um, it really matters that you, you get that country right. So it's a little surprising. Um, I, I, I would, I would just say um, for the most part, it's the same thing with the index thing you were talking about before. For the most part, you can probably be sure that most of your stuff, most of the positions you're going to get, you'll know the home member state because it'll be the country of incorporation. It'll be traded on a regula regulated market. Um, the same with the index stuff. Like, you'll know I'm not trading any large numbers of, of index indice positions or, or options or whatever. But in order to demonstrate compliance, you still have to do all this work, whether you're disclosing or not, you, everyone has to sort of do all this work up front, um, which can be a challenge. I know is a challenge, at least for our, for most, most of our clients. Yeah. And I mean, being, just being able to display those controls, that's where it, you know, the, the real struggle comes in because I bet you that if you're a small uh, asset manager, um, you will probably never breach this 20 and one rule and have to disclose on your index positions. But if you do get a visit from the regulator, I'm not sure they'll be happy with not seeing any controls whatsoever. So finger in the air. In place. <laughs> Even if you don't have a lot of exposure in those uh, via those derivatives, you might be close to a threshold. In some cases, you could be close to a 3% threshold for those gold-plated countries where that exposure would put you over the threshold and you would have a disclosure. And so even if you don't think you have a lot of uh, the look-through exposure, you could still run into a, a compliance breach, essentially. So um, so just, just closing out this data topic, um, what would you say sort of sort of both challenges facing our clients and facing fund apps, like what, what would you say the biggest data challenges are? Is it, is it simply home member state? Yeah, so there, there are two scenarios. We have our clientele and we have our non-clientele. Um, and given that we have kind of embedded this FIRDS database into our system and have spent months on understanding what the data means and we've spoken many times with ESMA etc and now have a good idea about what needs to be done that's not an issue if you are a fund apps client uh, if you are not a fund apps client well then it may be a different story uh, of course I can't speak to the individual uh, <laughs> manager that's, that's out there obviously the sheer amount of data that's in that database can be very very difficult for anyone to comprehend also uh, keeping in mind that as a compliance officer these days, we have very limited time to sit and trawl through giant databases because it doesn't really get the job done, does it? But it is definitely an issue. Otherwise, I would say some of the biggest issues that we have experienced is the sheer data volume required. And that is especially pronounced if you do as a modern asset manager trade across a wide variety of different instruments. If you do both trade derivatives, cash or physically settled, as well as convertible style instruments like warrants or convertible bonds, you trade preferred equity, normal equity, you trade convertible preferred equity. And each of these asset classes have their own nuance 
that we need to take into account when calculating our disclosable exposure. So the amount of data that is required and the access to that data, that is definitely uh, an issue because we do see data these days. It's the new gold. Oil was it back in the days. Now it's data. Uh, so we do see it have a, a decently hefty price tag on it, which is, you know, an, an issue for, for investment managers. Now, there are so many things we can talk about related to the transparency directive. I guess before we wrap up, though, it might be interesting just to talk uh, briefly about the filing process itself. So let's say we're able to do all the calculations, able to do the aggregation, which we haven't even gone into fully, and then you have to do the filing. Maybe, Ebe, can you talk us through a little bit about the, the methods and some of the, the peculiarities of that process? Yeah, I mean, the, the filing process and the, uh, in general, delivering the disclosable information uh, to the regulatory authority, that's actually one of the only places in the directive where there is no standard guidelines um, on how, how that should be done, which also means that all the playful member states have free room to play, basically. They can do whatever they want to do. And that is that is, is also seen. Um, we see many different types of documents which needs to be filled in. So we see Excel documents, Word documents. Sometimes there isn't a standard document that needs to be filled in, just the kind of guidelines from the directive on what information needs to be submitted uh, to, to the regulator. So there is a, a wide span there uh, of, of what we need to do as investors. The second bit is then, well, how do we deliver this, this message? And again, there, there is no kind of guidelines around it as long as it's uh, delivered. So what we see that most, uh, most of the member states have done is either accept an, an email where you attach a document. There are online portals uh, available where you as an investor needs a login to the to the regulators portal like one of those logins you really love almost like your, your netflix <laughs> subscription um where you log in and you you upload a document there are some that also still accept a fax for the uh, for, for the disclosable information so there's a lot of space here where um where the regulators are basically using their liberty to choose what submission method they want. What we want as a tech company is of course, to take this very random intermediate step out of the equation. There is no reason why structured formats should, uh, structured data should be put into a Word document and then sent on to a, an, another party, which then takes information out of the Word document and put it into a structured format, again, to create transparency in the market. That is ludicrous. It's waste of time. It's, uh, it's creating double the amount of work on two different sides. So instead, we should just be allowed or we should be able to deliver our structured data from one end to another end directly via the click of a button and then take these legacy file formats out of that submission process. Yeah, it's, it's surprising because it's beneficial to both sides, the regulators collecting the data uh, and, and the people submitting. So it's, it's always shocking to hear. I think people, if they, I don't know if the, the general public is listening, I don't think they would, would be, but if, if they were and they heard, you know, people are emailing PDFs 
to make public market disclosures. It's pretty shocking, you know, if you think about it. But I think at the end of the day, who who's going to pay for like all that? And I, I it, that's the, I think the problem, like finding a central organization or thing to to actually do it. One to do it, and two to pay for it. Um, pay for it. Just I don't a, think. I, I think. Funny quote here. Uh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Because I was called when when the United Kingdom was still in the European Union, you know, they accepted uh, back then you submitted via uh, an email and you had to put in your information in a TR1 form. It's called a Word document. And I called them up, called up the FCA, the regulator there and asked them, I'm sending you a Word document, which you print out. Now you tell me how that creates transparency in the market. <laughs> And the person on the other end couldn't say anything because they, you know, secretly agreed that yeah, it doesn't. You're here to create transparency. Well, create transparency and I'll help you create it with structured data. I can go on on that topic for a while, but. We hope the politicians are li uh, listening. Listening too. Yeah, we'll get them on this <laughs> podcast. I think, yeah, I, I, I even think that I said the cost, but I think the cost is not even a factor because if you asked market participants to like pay a tax so that it was centralized and easy to do, I bet you, you know, nine out of 10 would say, let's do it. Let's even if they're not filing, they'd say, let's make it easy. So I don't have to worry about it anymore. Before we wrap up, do you want to, uh, Ebe, just talk a little bit about Academy as a service, uh, the, the fun apps product. I know it's a shameful plug uh, on some of the stuff, but if people want to hear more or get into the nitty gritty, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about it? Yeah, definitely. And I can, I can talk about now that we are in a world of automation and data, machine learning, algorithms, and all these other kind of techno sounding words, uh, why do we need as a end user to understand uh, these regulations, the regulatory requirements, because the algorithm is just doing it for us, which is some, some feedback that I've heard on this academy, actually. And there are kind of two sides to why I still think education and understanding of these rules here are extremely important. And the first one is data and algorithms and how those two things link together, because an algorithm or any function is only as good as the data input that you shove into the algorithm. And if we shove in bad data, well, we get bad results out and the algorithm is not to blame for that. So the compliance function is still 100% responsible to ensuring that the algorithm has done a good enough job, i.e. check the data input. And if we as a compliance function are 100% reliable for that, we also need to understand what the algorithm is doing. And given that these algos here are basically just codified interpretations of the regulations, well, then we need to understand what the regulation seeks to achieve and how we calculate our exposure and the instruments in scope, et cetera, et cetera. That is definitely a place. And also, if you mess up a filing, you filed based on some incorrect numbers, you can't just point to the algorithm and say, he did it. You know, that's not a, that's not a valid excuse. Uh, I bet you that uh, the Baffin won't take it at least. So there is definitely a need to understand what, what goes on. And also just from, you know, I'm a soft guy. I'm an emotional guy. And, you know, I want people to have feel fulfillment in, in, in their daily work. And if I were to come into my my job as a compliance officer and simply file uh, 60 filings to the Baffin and to France, the SEC in the US, et cetera, but have no clue 
of why I'm doing it. What is the purpose of all these filings? Where do they end up? Why do these people need to see what positions we hold and so on? If I don't know that, I would feel a little bit bad about what I spent my time on doing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, um, yeah. So for that reason, I think also the, the academy is a, is a great way to get up to speed with kind of the core purpose of why these rules are there in the first place and then why it makes sense to automate them afterwards. You're providing life fulfillment, not just uh, regulatory fulfillment. Life like coaching this. as a service. As a mean. service. <laughs> it's a good pivot. There's a meditation class in there too, I think. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's all I got. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on and talking to us a little bit. We could have done this for hours, I think. Hours. Maybe we'll have you back. <laughs> so pick be, another, pick another regulation. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we go to the Sith, the dark side, and talk about short selling next time. Oh, God. I think that's going to be, that'll be our next one together. Thank you for tuning in to Late Night Disclosure, the FundApps podcast series. If you have any questions or feedback, please tweet us at FundApps or visit fundapps.co to get in touch. Until next time.